Today we find ourselves in the bread of life passage. It's a long discourse, so we're going to tackle this discourse over the course of the next three weeks. And I've entitled our sermon today, Bread That Resurrects the Dead. Bread That Resurrects the Dead. We all need bread that resurrects the dead. And I want to start this morning by having you consider what bread represents. Bread is a symbol for all of us of basic provision and sustenance. I know some of you don't eat carbs and you have a certain diet or maybe you're allergic to ingredients in bread, but that doesn't matter. Bread and water simply represent necessities for survival. So you can substitute that with uh, anything else you need that's very basic. If bread represents our basic needs, then everything else built on top of bread is a want. Bread is basic. You need food to live. Now, how do you get bread? You can either work for bread or you can have it provided for you. You can have it given to you. And the reason why we need to work for bread actually goes back to the fall of man. So I have for you on the screen Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. After the fall of man, after sin entered into this world because of Adam and Eve's sin, part of the curse of the fall reads this way, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. And so in this single verse, we see several themes. That life is going to be a struggle. That in order to survive, you need to provide for yourself. You need to have basic provision. And you'll need to work by the sweat of your face. You need to work in order to provide. Those who don't need to work, somebody had to work, right? So if you receive an inheritance or if you're you're born into a wealthy family, someone worked at some point. And ultimately, it says you will work to provide basic provision or someone will work to provide for you until you die. And so every single time you eat bread, it's this reminder that that bread is perishable, it's finite, and every single time you see that that bread is perishable, your life is finite. Our lives are perishing. Eventually, we are going to die, and it's going to be this way until we return to the ground. Now, built on top of that, I want you to think about this thought. Most of us in this room, most of you listening or watching online, most of us don't just work for what we need. We work for what we want. I want you to chew on that for a little bit. When you choose a career, I think most of you don't choose a career just so that that career or that job can pay for bread, basic provision. But you choose a career based on your desired standard of living. You're working not just for bread. You're working for a quality of life. You don't just work for what you need. Most of us work for what we want in life. I know there's students here this morning. I don't think there's any of you who would say, I need to study hard. Why? To get into a good college? Well, why does that matter? So I can find a good paying job so that I can buy bread, water, basic clothing, and some shelter. I don't think there's anyone 
in here who thinks that way. We work so that we can afford a certain quality of life. Now, given there's going to be seasons and there's some of you who are listening where you're barely bringing home the bread. And if, but if you had your way, it wouldn't be that way. And so I don't think it's wrong to work for a certain quality of life. I think it's wise to steward the opportunities that God has given you in the place and time that God has placed you in. But stewardship is different from being blinded by the various wants of this world. And so once again, I will say we work not just for bread. We work for what we want, not just what we need. And so today I want you to see a contrast of the, of the crowds that Jesus is ministering to. And so there's a contrast between what they want versus what they truly need. And what I want you to consider is that sometimes we read these narratives in the New Testament where like these guys must be so dense and stupid, right? You're like, they're seriously going to Jesus just asking for bread? No, I don't think so. These are fishermen, business owners. These are carpenters like Jesus and his father. These are, these are shop owners, stay-at-home moms. These are stewards of estates. They might not have Roman citizenship, but if they had opportunity, they too would work for the Roman dream or substitute American dream. They are, not that too, they are not too far off from you and me, and I want to locate your heart among that crowd this morning. And I want you to see that what they want is what we really want. But what they need is also what we truly need. And the crowds, they are blinded by material wants. That's the first point we are going to see this morning, the first reality. So if you have God's word, if you'll meet me in John chapter 6. John chapter 6 this morning, we are going to be start picking this, picking this up starting in verse 22. John chapter 6, verse 22. And I want you to see once again that the crowds are blinded by material wants. Now let me give you a brief explanation before we jump in and read the text. In verses 22 to 25, it brings us back into the New Testament world where we find ourselves near the shores of Galilee. And last week, Pastor Terrence did a wonderful job unpacking two powerful and familiar accounts, two miracles. The first was the feeding of the multitudes. The second was Jesus walking on water. And these two miracles were signs that Jesus is the Messiah. They were designed to help the crowds and then his disciples understand that Jesus is sent from God, that he is the Messiah. Now, the first miracle, the feeding of the multitudes, the crowds got to witness that miracle. But as it was explained last week, the walking on the water, that was only for the eyes of the disciples. So the crowds actually did not see Jesus walking on water. They did not see how Jesus got across the, the lake, the Sea of Galilee. And that's why they are going to ask him, when did you get here? How on earth did you get here? Now with that, let's go into the text. Verse 22, John 6, starting in verse 22, John writes this, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. 
and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near to the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Now, stop there for a second. We're not sure how or when or where these boats from Tiberias came, but these boats came. They might have been family members coming to pick up people from the crowd. They might have been like taxi boats, but they arrived. But before they arrived, there was only one boat. There was only one boat, and the people saw that there was only one boat, and the disciples got into that boat, but Jesus did not get into that boat. Now pick up in verse 24. Now first, verse 24, it says, So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went into Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, because they did not see him walking on the raging waters, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? If you didn't get into that boat, how'd you get here? When did you get here? Now, the text doesn't tell us, the text doesn't tell us uh, how Jesus answers that question, right? In, in other words, Jesus does not answer their question. Instead, what Jesus does is he begins to expose their motives. Now, I want you to look at verse 26, where you begin to see where Jesus shows them that they're blinded by their material wants. Now, verse 26, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs that I am the Messiah, but because you want more bread. See, the, the sovereign regeneration of that bread where, where Jesus opened up the oven of the heavens and he began to generate bread, just miracle bread, as well as multiply that fish that was meant to be a sign. They were supposed to see that sign and see that bread and to taste that bread and to see it. This is the Son of God. There's something different. He's not just rabbi. They still refer to him as rabbi. But he is Lord, but they can't see that. I love how Matthew Henry comments on this verse. Quote, many follow Christ for loaves, not for love, end quote. He puts a play on words, Matthew Henry does. And so if they truly loved Christ or fell in love with Christ, they would see who he is. And if they truly saw the feeding, as Pastor Terrence explained, if they could actually see that Jesus was showing them love by feeding them and providing for them, they would see him as more than just a rabbi more than just the carpenter from Nazareth. Now, we could safely infer that some in the crowds were poor common folk. Not everyone, but some were poor. And certainly, they could benefit from free food. So, uh, besides loving the entertainment that Jesus performs, these amazing miracles, it makes sense that they would go back for some really good bread. Now, scholars and historians tell us that the Roman emperors and politicians would actually distribute, uh, distribute free food, big government, to pacify the Roman people. But I want you to see that the problem that Jesus 
encounters is not one of social welfare. No, he's addressing their spiritual bankruptcy. If it was truly an issue of social welfare, there is no one better than Jesus Christ to minister to the poor, to heal the sick and the blind and the lame, and to provide for basic sustenance for people. But he knows that it's not so much that these people are starving. Otherwise, Jesus would feed them and provide for them because he came for the poor. Instead, the reason why he refuses to give in to their request and he refuses to even entertain their question is because he can see right into their hearts. He's addressing their spiritual bankruptcy. They are too focused on the material wants to recognize their spiritual need. And that's why in verse 27, Jesus instructs them. If you'll look at verse 27, I have it on the slide overhead for you. And I've underlined for you what I want you to see. John writes what Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes. Remember bread and work, Genesis 3. You will work for bread by the sweat of your face. Do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Now the seal here is not the kind of seal you see at SeaWorld, obviously. This is a signet seal. It's a seal of God's approval in this context and authorization. You see merchants, officials, Rulers would use seals to authenticate containers, to seal their containers, saying this is legit. This is a legit K95 mass box. (laughs) It's real. It's not fake, right? There's a seal on it. Uh, Or officials and attorneys would use a signet ring as a signature to seal an official document. And here Jesus is saying that God the Father has placed his seal of approval upon his son that Jesus is actually the only one authorized by God the Father to give out this bread of life. So Jesus wants to offer bread of life. So you, you, you see these two questions come up. What do the crowds really want? They want material wants, and I'm going to keep unpacking this for you. But what do they truly need? Jesus is offering what they truly need. It's eternal life. They are wanting and willing to work for food that perishes. And Jesus is telling them, don't work for that food. But I want to offer you what you really need, which is the food of eternal life. Now, Jesus is not being unintelligent or impractical. He knows that you and I need food to live. He also knows that you have to work for food. So when he says, do not work for food that perishes, we've got to think deeper than that. We need the bread that Jesus offers, which is actually a metaphor for spiritual life, eternal life in Christ. Many times when we find that our hearts are aligned with God, God does promise to provide for our basic sustenance. He promises us not to worry about our basic needs, that if you truly follow God, that you will have provision, that he will provide for your basic needs. And so that's why, once again, I don't think that the issue here is basic provision. Most of us, like I say, don't work for basic provision. We work beyond basic provision. We work for a certain quality of life. 
And that true eternal life can only come through Christ. Now, we notice in verses 28 to 29 what Jesus says. He continues to develop this idea of bread and work. Notice verse 28 and 29. And then they said to him, what must we do? They're willing to work. They're willing to work. What must we do to be doing the works of God? And in verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, a few things to explain. They're talking about religious works because they're all Jewish people. This is the region of Galilee, which is also why they ought to know better that this is the Messiah of Israel because they're Jewish. So when they say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They're talking about, is there anything religious that we can do to get this bread? But they still don't understand that this is spiritual bread. They're thinking this is some type of miracle bread. He's talking about eternal life. They're still thinking about bread physically, but they're starting to see that Jesus is saying that it's more than just bread. They don't get it still. And he answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him. Now, rarely do I do this, but the NIV <laughs> translates, translates this better. When it says, what must we do to be doing the works of God? This is not the works that God performs. If you understand, and I'm not saying that you should, I didn't, I had to look it up. If we understand what the original Greek is saying, it's actually, what works does God require? Okay, and the NET Bible, which is a very excellent Bible, it says, what must we do to accomplish the deeds that God requires? So what the ESV does not translate for you is this word requires, right? Which it helps you to understand that they're asking what religious works do we need to do to get this spiritual bread that you're talking about. And once again, I, I will re repeat myself. That remember what I said, that most of us don't work just for what we need. We work for what we want in life. And I want you to consider this. How many of you in here really love your job? Just raise your hand if you love your job. You're passionate about what you do. Pastors don't count. You better love your job, right? <laughs> so how many of you love your job? Okay, that's great. You know, if you love what you do and it pays for whatever standard of living you want, you've hit the jackpot. You know, the other thing is that some of you really love a certain profession that must be the Tesla because it takes a while for them to open up their phone, unlock it, and put it out. Anyway, try to ignore that. Some of you, if you really love your job and you say, it's not about how much money I can make. i rather do what I love to do. That's great. But most of you are practical. I think that a lot of you did this, that you, when you try to determine as a student what do you want to do for a living? You look at a salary index and you listen to what your parents tell you and you say, doctor, lawyer, huh, I don't think I could be a doctor. So you go down the list, ah, this is not bad. What are you doing? You're saying, I want to make roughly around this much. I can't do that. I can't play in the NBA either. 
There's only one Jeremy Lin, so this works for me. This works. But when you say this works, you don't go to the bottom and say, this will provide bread. Because if we thought that way, that's what we would all do. We would say, well, what's, what's the easiest thing? I'm not, we shouldn't be lazy, but I'm saying, what's, what's, what can I do? Eh, that's all I need. And the rest of our time would be spent serving God, spending time with family. Again, there, there's an issue of stewardship where we have opportunity, and we should strive for what gifts and talents God gives us, and we should be making money if God enables you to, and stewarding that for the kingdom, right? Investing that in people and for the kingdom, and investing that into building up society. So I'm not saying that we don't take advantage of opportunity, but all I'm saying is that I want you to see that you and I are not that much different from these people. So if we think that way, right, I can't do this, but maybe I can do this, these professions, you're never looking at just bread. You're looking at, I am willing to work. To Again, I'm willing to go to school. I'm willing to pay for college. I'm willing to pay for grad school just to find what works to give me a certain quality or standard of life. And the Jews in Galilee, they looked at Jesus. They said, he makes miracle bread. That works. I'm not Roman. I will never be like a Roman citizen. I will never have the luxuries of Babylon. I have to pay my taxes. Can you relate to them? I have to pay heavy taxes to the Roman government. Then I got to pay the, the temple tax. I want to follow God. I'm barely trying to make it. I don't have opportunities like Americans, these Jews of Galilee. Jesus, that will work. That works. Because if he is truly the Messiah who will overthrow Caesar, then we'll be living the Roman dream. It will be the Israel dream. That works. They're not that far from you and me. We just have opportunities. I would imagine that if you were there, I know some of you, and God bless you for thinking this way, you would go to Jesus and say, Jesus, this bread is so good. I have a business proposal for you, Rabbi. What do I need to do to work for you? Can I follow you? I can sell this bread. It's better than 85 degrees. I know Wonder Bread, that's already taken. But we'll call it miracle bread. It's going to be on the shelves, Jesus, of every market from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. I'll tell everybody about this bread. We'll do Jesus, your Jesus and sons, fish and grill. You do the work. I'll distribute. And we'll franchise this thing. How many of you guys would think that way? Right? You would. You would say, Jesus, you just got to make this bread. Now, there's going to be some people who are thinking more provision, and they're going to be like, man, if I follow this guy, my kids and my wife will have food to eat. It, so, Jesus, can I follow you? Can I follow you? I'm not, I don't want to be rich. I don't need to be wealthy. I don't need to be Roman. Uh, will you just give me this bread? If I'm your disciple, will you give me health insurance and food? Right? So how many of us can see ourselves and locate our hearts among the crowds that day? I don't think they are that dense. They are faithless at times, but they are not brainless. So what do the crowds really want? They want a better quality of life. 
They want material wants in life, and they see an opportunity. And brothers and sisters, I am just like them. Only by the grace of God, I am what I am, that Jesus Christ opened my eyes to see that he is Messiah. You as well. We are just like the crowds. That leads us to point number two. Jesus offers what they couldn't see, but Jesus offers what we truly need. And so for our second point, I, I will cover everything up to verse 40, from verses 30 to 40, except for verses 37 to 39. And the reason for that is because I believe that the subject matter, which is sovereign election, <laughs> deserves one whole sermon. So that's next week. Okay? So next week's passage, the latter part of the discourse actually aligns better with verses 37 and 39, and so we'll save that. Today, I want to stay focused on this bread. So the Jews still don't get it because they're asking Jesus to prove himself through another miracle. It's as if the feeding of the multitude was not good enough. The Jews reach into their Old Testament history books, and they refer to God providing manna from heaven. Now, I, I want you to see verses 30 to 31 first, and I have it on screen for you. And so the Jews in Galilee, they say to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? So, so they're willing to work for bread that's a miracle bread, and they're asking him, well, if you're offering us if you're saying you're the son of man, if you're offering us something from heaven, if you're speaking with such authority, what work do you perform? Verse 31, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So manna, after God delivered Israel from Egypt, God provided basic food for their survival because they were wandering. And they did not have to work for it. And God knew and he was gracious to them. So every single day, God dropped uh, a semi-sweet, white, carbohydrate type of substance. I don't know what it is. It's called manna. Uh, but the manna was meant to remind Israel that one, God rescued you. If he saved you, why is he going to save you and let you die? If he saved you, he's going to sustain you. If he saved you, he will sustain you and he will redeem you and you need to trust him to provide. And so that's part of the purpose of the manna and in verse 31 when when they say he gave them bread from heaven it's a reference to psalm 78 verse 24 but here's the irony here's the irony so they're challenging jesus and they're saying jesus are you really greater than moses like pastor terence shared last week if you're greater than moses then are you going to give us something better than manna are you going to perform another miracle as if his miracles that he has performed is not good enough? And how ironic that they refer to Psalm 78. Because you know what Psalm 78 is about? You know what Psalm 78 is about? It's about Israel's stubbornness to trust God. That's what it's about. And so these Israelites here, these Jews now are just like their forefathers. And they don't trust God. They don't trust God's son. They're spiritually blind. And then so in verses 32 to 36, if you look with me now, we see how Jesus corrects their theology. And this is so funny. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread. It, it wasn't Moses that gave you the bread from heaven. My 
Father gives you true bread from heaven. And right there, if you can read in between the lines, Jesus is saying he's God. He's the Son of God. He's saying my Father's the one. You guys believe that God gave you that bread through Moses. It's actually my Father. He's my Father. Verse 33, <clears throat> For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So there you see that Jesus is saying, just as the manna was provided from heaven down to the earth, that he, Jesus Christ, is the bread of life that comes down from heaven that gives life, not death. Because remember, you will eat bread until you go back to the ground. Right? Bread reminds, bread is good. I, I like bread. Bread is good. I prefer meat in between my bread. Uh, but bread is good. But bread reminds you it's going to perish and you're going to die. But he is the bread that comes down from heaven that gives you life, right? Gives life to the world. All things were created through him. And he gives life, but sin separated us from that life. Now look at verses 34 to 36. Look at their response. They said to him, sir, <clears throat> they're from the south. They say, sir, give us this bread always. They still don't get it. They want bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Why don't you get it? I am. This is the I am statement. We'll talk more about that uh, later on because he's going to co continue to say that he is the I am. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me, yet you do not believe. And obviously, like we mentioned, Jesus is not saying that you can go without hunger I mean, that you can uh, go without food or water. He knows that you're going to grow hungry without food and that you need real water to survive. But he's talking about eternal life, that there's a spiritual reality that our hearts long for, that that spiritual need will not be fulfilled, that no matter what you work for in this life, your needs and your wants, you're going to be constantly hungering and thirsting for more until you find something that's imperishable for your soul, and that he is saying this morning, it's not just religion, it is the Redeemer. It is a person, it's Jesus Christ. And so verse 36, it reflects the spiritual blindness of the Jews in this passage. Now, skip to verse 40. Verse 40, it says, for my Father's will, and once again, I, don't miss this, he keeps saying he comes down from heaven, he, keeps, he comes from above. He keeps referring to, to God as his father. That's why the Pharisees and the, the religious leaders want to kill him. He says, my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And get this, I will raise him up on the last day. I will raise him up. <clears throat> so there will be a day where that eternal life takes on a full reality where Jesus raises us up from the dead. He is the firstborn. He is the firstfruits of the resurrection. He's going to go to the cross, die for our sins, and he will rise again. And I think when we consider application, this is very clear. Like I mentioned, Jesus is not saying don't steward your opportunities because there's other places in the gospels where we are told not to squander what the lord has given to us and to be wise and shrewd with our resources 
But he's saying, don't be consumed by the pursuit of perishable things, for your soul will likewise perish. If your heart gets over-consumed by what you are consuming in this world, it will actually eat your heart alive. Everything you work for will go to the ground. So don't spend the rest of your life working for just material wants. Maybe some of you, you desire to live for Christ, but your soul is being devoured every day by material wants. And as a result, your spiritual life feels shallow and God feels far. Maybe the quality of your life is actually filled with plenty of provision. Maybe there's some of you who could actually afford everything that you want, but there's something missing and you are not overfilled with joy. You are not at peace. You haven't, you don't remember the last time you felt the presence of God. And so if you desire to live a powerful life in Christ, then what Christ offers you is spiritual bread, and he needs you to see it. In the introduction and throughout, I've mentioned and repeated that physical bread is a symbol of our basic needs, but it reminds us of sin's consequence. And I want to go back once again to Genesis 3.19. Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. And what does Jesus say as good news to this curse? By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me will have eternal life and I will raise him up from the ground on the last day. Let me give you the big, big idea and then I want to land the plane right in some of your souls. The big idea is this. Trust Christ, for by the sweat of his face and the blood of his brow, whoever eats his bread will rise from the ground. You see, Jesus is going to go to the cross. He says he's the bread of life. Some of them don't understand this, but some of them will. His disciples will fully understand what he means that he is the bread of life and you need to eat his bread and drink his blood. He's he's going to explain this and he's going to do it on the cross. He's going to die for our sins. And so we know the curse that by the sweat of your face, you will work all your life to eat bread until you die, until you return to the ground. And that's it. You, You basically sleep because you need to sleep. Then you get up and you have family and you have life and you have to go to work. You work for what? So that you can eat and have a certain quality of life, and then you repeat that cycle over and over again until you die. And Jesus is saying, trust me, for by the sweat of his face and the blood of his brow on the cross, whoever eats his spiritual bread, meaning whoever believes in him and his death and resurrection, will rise from the ground. He reverses the curse by offering us true bread. And the Jews in this passage still didn't get it. And they miss the point of Jesus' teaching. But I have to imagine among that crowd. So we know, as Pastor Terrence explained last week, that the 5,000, that's just the men. You consider the multitudes of children and women, and you're looking at close to 20,000 people. And I don't know how many of them got on taxis, not all of them, these little taxi boats from um, Tiberius and went over to the other side. But you have to imagine that among those crowds, there had to be one. There had to be some, at least one, whose heart was being torn asunder 
and whose eyes were being opened that day. There had to be one whose heart was being unbound to reality. There had to be that one who at least thought, you know, I've read my Old Testament stories all my life. I want so desperately to obey God, but I'm a sinner. There had to be at least one who thought I constantly fall short and he works. But I don't need the miracle bread. I need him. He works the works of God. He's the son of God. I need eternal life. I need what Jesus is offering. I want what Jesus is offering. I need a savior who will save a sinner like me. There had to be at least one among them that day coming out of that crowd and saying, I want to love God, but it's hard. I know my sin is consuming my soul. I know I've been chasing this world, and my soul is weary. I know I love the world, but I need Jesus to change my heart. And I wonder, I wonder if there's anyone like that here today. I wonder if there's one of you who could see yourself among that crowd. I wonder if there's one of you watching right now at home who says, you know, I'm in that crowd and I am constantly looking for opportunities to improve my standard and quality of life. But my relationships are hurting. My soul is empty. I can't do anything because I'm looking at the physical, material things in life to improve my quality of life. But I wonder if there's anyone this morning who would step out of that crowd and say, I need Jesus Christ. I wonder if there's one in here today uh, today who has been following Jesus and you profess to be a Christian, but you know including me, that there are a lot of times where we love the world and we love the comforts of this world more than we love Christ. I wonder if there's anyone listening or watching today whose heart has been torn apart by the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning and the Spirit of God has come upon you and you're thinking that you've worked hard all your life And like I mentioned before, you actually can afford a lot of the luxuries of life. But you're saying there's nothing you can do to save your marriage. Your marriage is hurting. There's nothing you can do to save your kids. There's nothing you can do to save your soul. And you're realizing that you don't want to die. You don't want to go back into the ground having gained the world but having forfeited your soul. And if that is you, then Jesus invites you to come out of that crowd. Jesus invites you this morning to step out, even if you're watching at home on your couch or you're watching this on your device. Jesus calls you to open up your heart and to trust him for by the sweat of his face and by the blood of his brow, whoever is willing to eat his bread When he returns, you will be risen from the ground. He will raise you from the ground. Jesus Christ died for your sins on the cross. He rose again from the grave. If you trust your life to him, he will restore your soul. And if you confess your sin 
and ask God to turn your heart towards his son, Christ will turn your life around. And yes, trust me, if you trust him, he will indeed provide for your basic provision. Not only will he provide for basic provision, but he will provide a salvation that you so desperately need. And when your mind and heart finally realizes that Christ is what you and I desperately need, then he will also become the one that our soul truly wants. Only then will we be reordered where we will work, not for salvation because works is by faith, but we will work for what we truly need which is Jesus, and we will work for what we truly want. In other words, Christ will drive our greatest need and he will guide our work and everything that we pursue in life and how we steward the opportunities that he gives to us. Will you join me for a word of prayer? Father, we come before you this morning and we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Father, we know that it's by the sweat of the face of Christ and the blood that flowed down from the thorns that were slammed on his brow that whoever eats the bread of life by believing in his person and his work, that we, you will raise from the ground. Father, I pray, Lord, if anybody needs to come to you this morning, that maybe during the response song, maybe afterwards, that they would come to Jesus Christ, that you would do your efficacious work, that you would draw people to yourself. Father, I pray for believers that you would help us to prioritize you and to see, Lord, that we so desperately need you just like we need bread for provision. Give us this day our daily bread, not just physical food, but teach us how desperately we need you. For man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of the living God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.